What's up, people? I'm Erica, and this is Cocktails and Capitalism, a podcast that pairs crafted beverages with stories distilled from our capitalist hellscape. We're joined by an incredible climate justice activist named Michaela Loach. Michaela is a fifth-year medical student and the co-host of the Yikes podcast, a show that focuses on the things that make us go yikes, from the climate crisis to racial capitalism. She's one of three claimants who have taken the UK government to court for handing over taxpayer money to fossil fuel companies in violation of their commitments to reach net zero emissions. Michaela was also heavily involved in the Stop Combo campaign that successfully shut down the development of the Combo oil field. On top of all of this important work, Michaela has just announced that she has a book coming out called It's Not That Radical, Climate Action to Transform Our World. And I truly can't wait to read it. I'm so excited to speak with her about her important work and the insight she's gained as a climate author, activist, and organizer. What's up, Michaela? How are you doing today? Hey, thank you so much for having me. This is like the coolest show. Like I, the <laughs> idea of pairing um, cocktails and capitalism is so fun. Um, and I'm really excited <laughs> to have this conversation. Oh, awesome. Yeah, I because the material is so heavy a lot of the time, like heavy and dark all the time. I figured it would be important to pair it with something that's light and fun and that we can enjoy at the same time as kind of making ourselves suffer by thinking about these hard things. Yeah, but it's it's important because like, I think a lot about how Adrian Marie Brown writes about like, how can we make taking action the most pleasurable thing that we can do? Mm -hmm. um, And how can we like inject joy into this work so that we're making movements people want to move towards? Um, and so I think this is like a, this is a great way of doing it. So you're doing, you're doing great. You don't need me to tell you that, but I just want to encourage you. No, I really appreciate it. Coming from you, that means a lot when you've done so much great work in the exact vein that we need to be going in as a species. So yeah, I'm, I'm kind of in awe of everything you're doing. And I, sorry, I know I'm making you like blush and everything over there. I know that's probably uncomfortable, but uh, yeah, I just need to give you those accolades. That's very kind. <laughs> On that note, um, I wanted to introduce the cocktail today, which we don't actually have a name for yet. I was hoping that maybe you could help me decide between the three top names that I chose. The first is the Michaela Loach. The second is No More Billionaires. And the third is The Last Resort. (laughs) (laughs) I I want to go with No More Billionaires. Because I Fuck think the yeah. last resort is too like bleak. It's quite like a nice. Um, I feel like. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I wish I was able to be drinking it right now. I mm-hmm. I'm, think I'm a bit later in the time zone than you. So I I do have a glass of rosé with me. Um, and my grandma, nice. as I got it from downstairs, was like, "Yes, my dear," as I picked it up <laughs> from the fridge. Um, but um, I think it. I want it to like you know inspire joy, which for me, no more yeah. billionaires is like joy because we live in a world where people aren't being oppressed in the same way. It's about I think so, sometimes we frame actions if we're just trying to stop stuff and obviously mm-hmm. you know we are trying to stop a lot of the bad stuff but we're also trying to create a better world where we don't have some people who have tons of like access to joy and mm-hmm. um i don't know capital whatever else yeah. and loads of people who have nothing to being oppressed because of those people and um, and so um yeah i know i like that i'd i'd order that at a bar. I'd order <laughs> that at a bar. awesome and we're hope we're hoping to like make a cocktail book in the future where we can tell the stories alongside the cocktail recipes. So, mm. so we'll, we would highlight your story so and all fun. the work that you've done. But I'm gonna shake it up. I haven't actually done that yet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, it's made of mezcal, grapefruit juice, lime juice, ancho reyes chili liqueur, 
um, Italicus Bergenot liqueur. I don't even know how, to, know how to say that. Or Saint Germain. It's like a floral liqueur. And then a pinch of salt. Mm. So I haven't tried it yet. So this is my first taste. It sounds amazing. Oh my God. It's really amazing. All the smoky and the floral and the fruity. Wow. Yeah, this is mm. kind of based on uh, Michaela's preferences. Oh my gosh. I need to, like, I'm going to get all the ingredients and make sure that I make myself one of these very soon. Um, I just, it, so if it contacts people listening, COP27 is happening next week, um, which is the biggest, like, climate conference in the world. And I've been very stressed trying to prep for that and have let things like, getting ingredients for cocktails slide sadly but, but i will be doing it soon because <laughs> joy is important too <laughs> dude no problem i would much rather you be working on that than picking up cocktail ingredients so fuck yeah <laughs> that's awesome yeah thanks for that context <laughs> all right well let's see um since we're already kind of talking about no more billionaires <laughs> You were recently invited to the Gates Foundation Goalkeepers 2030 event, where you caused many people to audibly gasp when you announced billionaires shouldn't exist, <laughs> which is just my favorite thing ever. Why shouldn't billionaires exist? And what compelled you to speak truth to power in this moment? Mm. I was really shocked, firstly, that I was even invited. I, When I got the invite... I was like, do they know? Do they know who I am? <laughs> do they know what I do? Um, because I'm quite publicly like anti the billionaire class. Like, I have yeah. guides on social media about why we should abolish billionaires. Like, I've done podcast episodes in which I've talked about the problem with Bill Gates framing himself as a climate leader, and mm. um, so I was, I was a bit, well, not a bit. I was hugely surprised when I got the invitation. Yeah. And I took a lot of time to think about whether um, to go or not because I was just like. This is not a space that I agree with. Um, I don't believe that like philanthropic capitalism. So this kind of idea that the people who have caused this crisis, these billionaires who have hoarded wealth that have um, generated that wealth through because of oppression, it just doesn't come from anywhere. Mm hmm that they should be in control of any of the solutions is like, doesn't make any sense to me. It's completely illogical. Um, and I think that it actually can cause a lot more harm than good um, in the long term of our like collective liberation and the path that we're taking. Mm -hmm. um, so I took a long time to like talk to mentors and to, to friends and to comrades and colleagues about whether this was a good idea or not a good idea and how I could interact with that space to kind of have an, a meaningful impact. And in the end, decided to go, um, basically thinking of it as if I'm going to go, I'm going to, one, because um, it was in New York. So one, I made sure that I was going to connect with as many local organizers as possible in, in New York <laughs> who are organizing around abolition or um, justice it. or things like that. Like, how can I use this as an opportunity to like really build solidarity um, across the pond, I guess. Um, and mm -hmm. then secondly, that I would enter that space being my authentic self and, and challenge it um, because these, these spaces <laughs> don't really get challenged because especially... It's a bit more of a nuanced space, I think, maybe than others. Like, there's lots of protests that happen outside of, I don't know, like the World Economic Forum or things like that, where it's like kind of obvious that like this is about capitalism. But these things where it's philanthropy doesn't really get challenged because a lot of movements are mm -hmm. also like dependent upon this funding. And that, I'm not saying that's necessarily like a, a bad thing on those groups, those movements, but it also just means that people don't challenge it because it's like, don't bite the hand that feeds you. I think a lot of people mm -hmm. um, can be like that. And so can't challenge it. Um but I think it's important that we do. So I went in that space. Um, I was 
put on a panel that that came after three hours of panels where Bill Gates was on every single panel, which Whoa. is just which was so painful <laughs> to sit through and and watch. And wow. the room was also full of like um see that we just got an email before saying like that secret service agents would be there to like be protecting the like high net individuals who were there or that like there's going to be intense security around the place and Whoa. and like we had to be security checked on the way in and everything obviously and then like it was really and then w- the panel that actually happened um and people can watch it on the live stream if people don't believe this actually happened but it did happen um the panel before mine was um bill gates and a bunch of like Cowpen, randomly the actor and some in experts in um conspiracy theories kind of talking about i think there's a lot of, obviously a lot of conspiracy theories around bill gates need to be challenged yeah but the way they were framing it was as if anyone who says anything against billionaires or bill gates is a like a, a, a in their words a crazy conspiracy theorist Jeez. um and that they are there aren't really bad guys and that they are that Bill is really trying to do the best thing and that people just misunderstand him. And that was coming mm-hmm. just before then I went on, which felt like also a bit of like nervy pressure that I was like, oh gosh, oh they've God. just primed the audience to think that I am a crazy conspiracy theorist in their words, <laughs> oh, not no. mine. Oh my um, God. Um, so <laughs> I know I was like, oh gosh. Um, but that's why I was really intentional in that what I did say um, was I was deliberately trying to bring the audience with me, realizing that the space that I'm entering in is one in which there will be people in the audience who share the same views as I do, but aren't able to say anything because of their mm-hmm. organization that does really save people's lives in the short term needs that, needs that funding. Yeah. Um, and there will be people in that room who will not agree with me at all. In, in but I want to still bring the, try and bring those people with me. I don't just want to like shout at everyone and be like, fuck billionaires, fuck Bill Gates. Like if I said that, <laughs> no one would listen to what I was actually trying to say. Mm. So instead I tried to just be honest about that. I didn't, to, by saying I don't feel comfortable in this space it's not a normal space that I would um find myself in but I felt it important to be here um to like make people a bit uncomfortable and that this is making me uncomfortable mm-hmm. too and maybe that's a shared experience that we're having so how can we like yeah sit in that discomfort which is kind of what we try and do on our on our podcast as well but in a lot of the work that I'm doing how can we sit in that discomfort to try and change things rather than just like feel comfortable with the space but I mean as as you as you said before there was I think one person who applauded when I said that I think billionaires shouldn't exist um one person it was just like oh audible gasps <laughs> yeah one person and <laughs> and lots of shocked faces because apparently this is the first wow. time um that anyone has ever said anything within that space to actually challenge the premise of that space um which is kind of wild to me that I was like these are obviously these events have been going on for probably decades like yeah. and the fact that this has never happened before um i think a lot of people were quite grateful for that challenge um yeah. but yeah it was quite scary but i'm glad i'm really glad now i'm like that was i'm really glad i did it <laughs> to see you say that on stage like that as a soft black girl as you call yourself <laughs> wearing like this bright pink outfit you're just like making this beautiful statement really boldly i just like i was so floored when i saw that like holy fucking shit this girl she she is doing the work she's doing she is saying the exact right things to the exact right people and you know and in making people uncomfortable you are inviting a discussion you're spurring conversation getting coverage of of these topics these talking points you Mm. you brought so much attention to it so I think there's a really good strategy there as well to speak truth to power in these spaces. So bravo, cheers to you. <laughs> Honestly, thank you so much. That's really kind because I 
can't really fully express, but I felt like I felt so nervous in doing it because I still wasn't sure if it was the right thing to do literally up until after I'd done it. Like I was like, <laughs> by being here, am I legitimizing this space in any way? Like, you know, just by being mm. present, by by having like a calm conversation in these spaces, am I am I legitimizing it? And so it was really actually like really heartwarming also for people to have seen the like pressure that that wasn't and the thought that yeah. went into it and like how um, stressful it was. And and I was very intentional with like, if I'm going to go into this space, I'm going to be my full self. I'm going to wear a great pink outfit. I'm going to have my <laughs> fro looking fresh and fine. Yeah. And I am going to like walk on the stage feeling like, I kind of had to feel like I was fabulous in order to have the courage kind of to say, the, say, to say things in those spaces because um, I think you need to like, it's kind of your, my armor, I think sometimes mm. in, in some ways it's like mm. wearing bright colors bright pink and like feeling fab because it um it kind of holds me in in that and it might seem like trivial to other people but I think it is it's really important that we feel like confident and and what you're saying about um speaking truth to power in those spaces I think that I think a lot more people are starting to do these things more like challenges to people in power is is a thing that I think is being used it's been used as strategy for a very long time but um Mm -hmm. especially in in recent years almost like almost exactly a year before the gates challenge so that happened this year a group of us um, found out that TED, so TED Talks, TED, they were having mm-hmm. a conference in Edinburgh, which is the city that I was living in at the time, and uh, the city that I've organised in, where I've done where I've done a lot of my climate work. Um, and they were having this like TED Countdown conference, which is this like climate conference. And they had invited um, the CEO of Shell, one of the biggest polluters, to that conference yeah. to speak on a panel. And a bunch of us were like, "This is absolutely fucked. Like they can't do that. Yeah. Like that's so wrong." we have to challenge it. And I wasn't in Edinburgh at the time. Um, but so I remotely like kind of organized a bunch of people, a group of us organized to get a local activist from Scotland on the panel to challenge um, Ben Van Buren, the CEO of Shell. And so my friend Lauren went on that panel and challenged, challenged Ben Van Buren about the fact that the Cambo oil field that you mentioned before was being approved by Shell whilst mm-hmm. they're on a panel talking about how they care about climate, which was ridiculous. And I think that I held <laughs> yeah. a lot of the power that we had managed to do like through that kind of challenge there that Mm. also had a huge impact on the world. And it's made me realize that we don't have to go into these spaces. If if someone's asking you into a space, they want your full self. That's what I think. Or you should be your full self. And that means you should challenge every opportunity and that maybe sometimes... Sometimes actually the harder option, which sometimes is showing up and challenging, because um, it, it is fairly easy to just say no and to not go. Um, but mm-hmm. sometimes the harder option of showing up and challenging is what can have a really big impact. Yeah. But it's it's hard it's hard to know what is the right or wrong thing to do. But I think that um, we need to challenge these things and I think it can have a huge impact. Well, you're doing it in, in brilliant ways, in so many ways. In a very similar vein, I'm very curious about, you've repeatedly stated that billionaire philanthropic capitalism cannot save us. Can you explain what you mean by this? Why isn't the charity of the rich a real solution to the huge problems society is going to face in the coming years? So the the thing with a lot of billionaires' philanthropy, or them, quote unquote, as they see it as giving away their wealth, mm-hmm. what they aren't doing is giving away any power. So what they're doing is basically, especially Bill Gates, for example, and Jeff Bezos and whoever else is especially investing in climate, Elon Musk as well, they're seeing that the climate crisis is is a reality that is going to face all of us. It's going to it's go it's it is already happening actually currently to but it's going mm-hmm. to it's going to impact more of humanity more and more. And what they're yeah. seeing is how can we continue to hold the same amount of power and control as we've managed to hold over the world as it is now for the future. And so their investment mm-hmm. in 
climate solutions isn't really about trying to solve the crisis. It's about trying to maintain control over over the future of its maintain relevancy and like what solutions are being pursued. Like in, for example, on the African continent, um, a lot of Bill Gates's work now is around agriculture and, and in the face of climate change, trying to um, what he sees as like saving Africa or whatever, um, which obviously is inherently like pretty colonial and gross as, as a concept. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. But also it's the fact that he's, choosing what solutions are being pursued it's not listening to like civil society or, or like it's not listening to the the peoples who yeah. exist in those areas it's dictating onto them what should be the solution and what should be followed and the solutions that are being dictated are ones which allow capitalism to continue and to adapt um for longer um and are solutions which allow a system where billionaires are even able to exist to continue because it is simply like, and I, and I don't think it's this like evil plot that they have. And I think that's a misconception. I think that some people act as if it's like billionaires are sitting like around a table plotting like, hee hee, how can we continue to control the world and be yeah. evil? <laughs> um, I think it's actually like that privilege obscures our view of, of how we see the world. Like, I think privilege is kind of like this this fog that like obscures us from the real connections that we have between each other. Like as humans, we are all connected to each other. Like that's why everything that we have in our lives is connected to like so many other people because things don't just appear like our, our lives don't just appear like systems don't just appear. It's, it's all through connections. But when you are a billionaire and you have an obscene level of wealth that has been generated off the backs of millions of people, but you don't see those people and you are surrounded by people who also have the same amount of wealth you are unable i I think they're genuinely their imagination is so constricted that they are unable to think of of solutions to the climate crisis that do not continue to benefit them and that's why i think they shouldn't be in in control of any of the solutions because they simply do not have the capacity to select or to um, pursue solutions that will really benefit all of us Um, because it'll be inconceivable to them that they they are the problem i think to to some extent as well and so that's why what I was trying to say as well there was that it's not just about redistributing wealth. While redistributing wealth is really important and while, um, and I think that it's like a key thing that, that as a collective, like we all need to be thinking of is like, how do we redistribute our wealth? But it's mm-hmm. about redistributing power too of, of who gets to decide what solutions are pursued, um, what communities are being prioritized. Because for example, if Bill Gates really wanted to tackle the climate crisis with the immense wealth that he has, he would be funding like indigenous resistance groups all over the world who are on the front lines of this crisis, who are really have in the US and Canada alone, 20% of emissions have been prevented from indigenous resistance alone, which is a huge amount. That's more than any technological advance. That's more than like any of these like things that these billionaires are pushing for or giving funds to or creating prizes (laughs) for. Um, Uh But the thing is that those those communities and those groups challenge the like the foundations of capitalism. They challenge like the foundations of white supremacy and of the world that we live in, and the, of, of all of those foundations that allow these billionaires to, to continue to generate so much wealth. Um, and so they aren't going to fund them because they don't want to be challenged. Mm-hmm. And that's inherently the problem: is that like, yeah, we need to redistribute power as well as as wealth, and that means really kind of reconfiguring things and not just not just like these kind of charitable donations that are like a such a minuscule percentage of their wealth as a whole as well. And, and obviously a lot of that is done for to avoid tax and things like that as well. Um, but it's also being like, how can we change who ha- who make the decisions, who 
who really like has agency in in what mm-hmm. we're pursuing. And it's also really hard to talk about this without sounding like <laughs> a conspiracy theorist. Um, <laughs> so that's why it's really hard to like to like tread that line, you know, um, because it has um, this is this is not about like some plots. It's about the realities of like how power works in this world, I think, and, and how we can redistribute that. Yeah, definitely. The thought that it would ever be in the interest of billionaires to undermine their own power in in a really significant way, like that's that's not going to happen. I think um, you know. I heard you. Who says the quote about like not being able to disassemble the master's house with the master's tools? Audrey Lord. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So. I mean, that was a brilliant, brilliant take on why billionaires um, are not going to save us and why (laughs) they're not the solution to our problems right now. Um, It's a huge pet peeve of mine that people would even think that billionaires would have the capacity to make decisions about what are the right things to invest in, what are the right, you know, um, solutions to the problems that we're facing. It's they're they're rich people that get really, really you know, into their own heads, into their own egos. I did an episode with a woman called Political Psych with Abby. Um, she has a YouTube channel and um, Instagram presence, but she she uses psychology to talk about um, political issues. And she was basically broke down why the rich don't give. Once, once they start making a lot of money, the proportion of their wealth that they're willing to give away gets smaller and smaller and smaller. So, yeah. so that is not in no way a sustainable solution to funding solutions for problems. <laughs> no, especially when the, like this, there's a quote by Ruth Wilson Gilmore where she says that, um, I'm going to butcher the quote, but it's like, what she's basically saying is that this money in the first place was owned by the workers and then it's just being ri- it was stolen mm-hmm. from them. Stolen wages, that's it. Philanthropy yeah, is the yeah, yeah. reallocation of stolen wages um, in, in private, by private hands or something like that. But I think that that's mm-hmm. what's important to remember is that this wealth didn't come out of nowhere. Like billionaires don't become a billionaire by accident. Mm-hmm. It's not like they just like accidentally, it's not like they yeah. like accidentally won the lottery to become a billionaire. Like it's a really like, it's a long process um, that requires yeah. a lot of choices to be made along that process to not be equitable and to not like be thinking of the people or the collective. Mm-hmm. And so... Like we can't expect people who've made that many decisions to then be the ones to like decide the solutions. It should be that the power <laughs> to decide is, is given to the communities that are, that are most impacted and they're really doing the work to transform the world. Absolutely. Perfectly put. Pivoting a little bit, what brought you to the climate justice movement? Why did you decide to get involved? And like, what did that involvement look like early on? So I, I think I had a bit of a not um, linear way into climate work because Hmm. growing up um as someone who's racialized as black and socialized as a woman i was like there are so many more pressing problems than the climate crisis Hmm. i was like police brutality isn't a more pressing problem poverty is a more pressing problem like racism white supremacy whiteness these are all problems that felt more immediate yeah that i felt like people who were doing climate work were just expecting communities that are being impacted by things um today to kind of like put their um issues on hold um and that didn't like feel right to me and it felt like it was this kind of problem for people who didn't really have problems right now Mm. but then it was actually so it started off kind of getting involved with um migrant justice work so 
on the border of the UK and France, there's a, a town called Calais, which is like a border town. And there's also one called Dunkirk. And in both Calais and Dunkirk, there are um, displaced communities there. Um, so people who have travelled across across Europe fleeing war or persecution or just wanting to be reunited with their families or for whatever reason and are treated absolutely horrendously by the French police there mm. and by obviously the UK's hostile environment policy. And back in, I actually can't remember what year, I think it was 2016, there was a picture, I'm not sure if it made it onto US newspapers as well, mm. but on the in the UK, there's a picture of a three-year-old boy called Alan Kurdi who his family had fled Syria and had their boat that they'd taken across the channel to Greece um, had sunk mm. and his, his three-year-old body was photographed on the beach. Mm. And that had a huge um, impact on me because I think I, so I was two and a half, I think, or at around two and a half or three when we moved to the UK from Jamaica. Wow. And the only reason that I was able to easily um, and without... Um, without having to take it without being forced into a dangerous route because it uh, was because I had British citizenship by complete chance like all of this stuff I think I didn't I don't feel that far divorced from from this because I realized like how much of where you're born or or what passport you get is really by chance and it I didn't feel like I was too far away from from yeah people who are being displaced because it is really just chance like where you end up being and so I felt really um I think that that photograph and that um the kind of the experience that people were having then really got me more active. Um, and I started going to Calais whenever I could to um, like provide like material help on the border um, to displaced communities, like chopping veg or chopping wood or sourcing out clothes or just like really basic stuff, like not like, but, but the, that showed me that a lot of the the work that needs to be done isn't actually that dramatic or that that yeah. like complex um hmm. so i think that i'd had this idea of um activism as being um this thing that's just done by exceptional individuals and it's public speaking and like protesting and organizing actions and things like that but being there i think i met all these incredible people who like being active or being an activist was just deciding to do something and like whether it's small or big or whether it was like flashy or not like it was just starting to do something and that really made me realise that also our own power and that we don't need to wait for big governments or NGOs or big organisations to do something in order to to take action. Like the kind of the main support that was being given and solidarity support that was being given to these communities was being done by just a bunch of students that just saw this was happening and, and saw that no NGO was intervening because wow. the UK government and the French government refused to see this as an actual refugee camp. And they were just like, we're going to go and support. And I think that that showed me that like, yeah, activists are just in ordinary people and that and we need just ordinary people to realise their own power when they come together. Yeah. And then, yeah, basically I was doing that work at the same time as getting caring, starting to care more about the climate crisis because realising how much it was impacting Jamaica, um, which is obviously my ancestral home. Mm -hmm. But then I thought that the only thing we could do about climate was to change our lifestyle choices, which is like, it's a bit ridiculous to me to think that now, with now all I know, but at the time it, we were told is just, oh, change how you live your life and that will help save the planet. Mm -hmm. But I started to realise that that's just not enough and it, it felt inconsistent. And I came across this concept of um, climate justice, which tied these issues that I cared about of racial injustice and um, migrant injustice and like capitalism and, and moving against capitalism and, and um, climate all together into one. And it showed me that, in order to tackle this crisis, in order to tackle the climate crisis, we do not have to leave behind other struggles. In fact, as the climate crisis was caused by 
white supremacy, by capitalism, by these oppressive systems, in order to adequately tackle it, it requires us to go to the root of all these issues and therefore actually create a better world for all of us. And so it's not just about continuation of the world as it is now, it's about transformation. Um, and that got me really like excited about climate work because it felt like it was the best opportunity that we have to really transform the world is by tackling the climate crisis with this lens of justice. And then from then I got involved with direct action and blocking roads and, you know, chaining myself to stuff. And <laughs> then now I do more communications um, based work and have yeah had court cases, done lots of different tactics. Cause I do feel like in, in many ways, like we are in last resort stage when it comes to climate and mm. last resort stage doesn't mean that we panic because I don't think that yeah. I don't think any good work comes from panic. I think that it just means that we take this seriously and we act with urgency. Yeah. And also that we realize that all of us have an opportunity a huge opportunity to transform the world and it's at our fingertips and it's in front of us and, and we have power to do that. But it mm-hmm. requires all of us to actually realize that power and then act on it. And the climate justice is actually really hopeful um, and and exciting. I love that so much. Seeing this crisis as an opportunity for us to transform our world, to create something better. I mean, it really is that. Uh, one of my favorite books of all time is a, a book called Apocalypse and or Metamorphosis by Norman O'Brown. And mm. that I feel like that epitomizes so much of what we're looking at with capitalism, with climate change, like Either we're going to metamorphosize, create something totally new and totally better for us, or it's going to be an apocalypse. So yeah, so it it is on us right now Mm -hmm. to do that work, to create a better world. And if we look at it as an opportunity and not just a nightmare, we're going to do much better work, you know? Yeah. And I think of like, I think I've read a lot, and this is something I write about a bit in the book as well, in the book I've just recently um, written that will be out soon, but um it's not that radical is what it's called. Um, but it's about climate action to transform our world. And I think that I've been hugely inspired because I was, when, when actually we first connected, I was living in, in Colombia mm-hmm. and oh, yeah. there communities were facing an existential threat today. Like the, the Colombian government like was an existential threat to indigenous communities and to the black community all over Colombia as mm-hmm. were as, like mm-hmm. people, an existential threat is not a new thing. Like so many communities were literally afraid of, and I mean, not that this this has just gone away because of the election, but just that there are so many communities all over the world that have that have four existential threats, and rather than like choosing to give up, have instead come together and built power and 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 caused transformation, and that is so possible. And we saw that in Colombia because overthrowing two hundred years of elite rule like that takes generational organizing and generational power building, and that yeah. takes like a huge amount of work, but a huge amount of belief and hope in transformation and the possibility of that. And I think that we can learn so much from communities who've done that. Like I learned a huge amount from communities in Colombia who are organizing from people and activists. Mm. And I think that sometimes in, in the UK, for example, we can think that we have it, not that we don't have it bad, but like people will be like, oh, we've had a, a conservative government, a Tory government for the last, what, 12 have many years this is that this is too bad we, we can't do anything and I'm like imagine if you'd had 200 years of elite rule and you still decided to organize for generations even even yeah. not knowing whether the, whether the future would be would be guaranteed or would be um and I think that that's what we can mm-hmm. learn so much from and that we need to remember that we don't take action because we know that everything is going to be okay we take action because we have no other choice but to but to try and make things more than okay but to try and transform things and I think that yeah 
that's what kind of motivates me. Because I, I think back to when my ancestors in, in Jamaica, like my ancestors when they were in, enslaved in Jamaica, when like they had to believe that something better was coming, like, and they mm. had to organize mm-hmm. to believe that something better was coming. And maroon communities in Jamaica had to organize to believe that something better was coming. And so um, it's Mar- um, Mary Annie Hegler writes a lot, and she wrote a brilliant essay called um, like saying that climate change isn't the first existential threat where she talks about this. And I think that's something that we mm-hmm. can, we can learn so, so much from and that we, we have to, yeah, we have to believe in that we can transform things and that a better, better world is possible. Otherwise, like, otherwise what are we doing? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. We have to believe that we have to have hope. Otherwise, <laughs> what are we going to do? Just give up and just sit down and call it a day and see the world go mm. down? Like, no, <laughs> mm-hmm. no, no, I, I love it. I, I love that approach. And, um, you know, this is the perfect transition to talking about a quote from Vogue magazine. You're quoted as saying, I do think all of us in many ways are at the last resort stage. I've tried using our elections to create change. Mm. I've tried changing my lifestyle choices. I've tried using social media to my best ability. I've tried direct action. And still we are heading towards complete climate disaster. I really think many people and young folks specifically will identify with this message. Since we've entered the last resort stage, what do you think we do now? Mm-hmm. What What's the next step? And what do you see as the most effective strategies and tactics for addressing the increasingly urgent climate crisis? So I think I, I, I also said it um, in another part of that article, but I think that li- I literally believe with all of my being that the only thing that will save us, because we don't, there aren't superheroes in this world, sadly, like, we we're not waiting for this the like the coming of a great leader to mm-hmm. to solve everything for us like billionaires won't save us our governments have proven to be honest that they aren't going to save us like currently yeah. um on the track that we're going and in and I'm ta- speaking for my context especially in the UK and so the only mm-hmm. thing that will save us is is building really really strong collectives and communities that will force a new world to to come and that will really like transform the world and i think that means like I have friends who work doing indigenous resistance in in sorry in in, Me- in Mexico, and mm. a lot of what they're doing is trying to build like um, resilience and 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 power in their communities so that they are like autonomous as well, and so they have they have um, huge amounts of power. And I think there's so much we can learn from like obviously the Zapatista movement that, have, that mm. has done that. Mm-hmm. I think that what we need to to do is like just like we need to really build power. And I feel like that sounds really like vague, but. <laughs> I think that things only change if we if we really make them change and that's happened in the past and it will happen in the future and I think that last resort stage means I think it's hard to talk about this without being doomy because I'm yeah, I, I don't yeah. want to believe that like that everything is going to be the worst that it can be yeah but we also have to approach everything with with a realism that sees that like things are currently not going very well not they're not they're not going in a good way yeah and that we but we do have an ability to change that but the only way that we'll change that is if to be honest if enough of us and it's not just about critical mass but it's about critical connections it's like if enough people like Mm. approach this crisis with an awareness of our own power and that we need to actively transform the world so that means like joining a group in your local community um, and offering your like time or your skills or whatever it is to aid the campaigns that are already happening or the the world building work that's already happening. Um, Whether that is, and I don't just mean by that, like direct climate work. I mean, like I see climate work as much more, much bigger than just like, you know, saving the trees or um, 
do decreasing emissions it's also like how do we create the conditions for um, a liberated world and so maybe that's doing like abolitionist work against like the carceral system and that will mean that people are able also to do more actions because they're not going to be fearing <laughs> like in the UK currently we have a public order bill that's going through it means that for things I'm saying here, I could, in the next couple of years, I could be forced to wear an electronic tag by the government if this bill goes through and oh um, check in to my local police station every now and then just because of, yeah, what? which is, it's truly like quite scary how things are going. And that's why like abolition work is climate work as well. Not just because obviously it allows mm-hmm. people to then do a lot of climate work, but it also means that like we are living in like a society that's based on care and and, and wellness as well and not, and not about mm-hmm. like violence and, and harming each other which I think is a necessary condition for a liberated future and for climate and for a, like a climate just future mm-hmm. so it's like thinking about how can all of us connect with our own power how can all of us like build power in our communities how can all of us like yeah get to um be part of that transformational change and realize that it's not going to come from anyone else like I am not going to be the saviour of humanity. No yeah. no one is going to be the saviour of humanity. No mm-hmm. one is going to solve all these problems. It, it requires um, kind of us to do it. And I think that I'm also cautious because I, I don't want to scare people into doing this. Like I don't want people to be like, oh, I'm so scared of the future, therefore I'm going to take action because I don't think that's a sustainable way to do it. Mm. I think find your reason to want this world to con- continue or find yeah. what do you want to be better what what's what excites you so much about making the world better that you can do nothing but acts like yeah. what is that thing like what do you love so much about being alive and and, and how can you do more of that in a way mm-hmm. that like creates a, a better world for us all and I think that that's how we can be motivated is by yeah by by joy and by and by pleasure and, and by transformation rather than just despair because yeah I don't think that's yeah scaring people it doesn't work. And that's why yeah. I get so frustrated with so much climate storytelling, yeah. like like Don't Look Up, that I found deeply frustrating because I was like, I left that watching that being like, feeling awful. <laughs> it yeah. doesn't make me be like, yeah, yeah I'm going to take things down. It's like, oh gosh, we're we're screwed and all we can do is sit around a dinner table and talk about yeah. it. Like It's like, no, we can organise, we can do things. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I just I just think that, yeah, realising our own power, I think is the best thing that we can do and then and then acting on it. I love that, like, realizing your own power can look like showing up for your community and bringing food for people that mm. need food, bringing supplies for people that need support. You know, it, it's it's essentially a lot of the time mutual aid that builds those kinds of communities, that build those mm. pow- that mm-hmm. kind of power that can challenge capitalist power structures. So I love yeah. that you kind of got into your activist work by doing that kind of just immediate direct aid. In the face of a cost of living crisis, where in the UK, for example, we're seeing like energy companies make their biggest profits in history. Meanwhile, like millions of families in the UK are being plunged into poverty, yeah. like where they cannot feed their children, yeah. which is absolutely like awful. Like families, also families are being plunged into like extreme debt because of paying for meals at school, which oh, is like yeah. ridiculous. Like oh. so many people are going to be killed by capitalism because yeah. of this cost, quote unquote cost of living crisis. And the way to respond to it is to be like, how can we build, how can we share things within our community? How can we build systems in our community in which that we are as a community resilient to mm-hmm. to the kind of the forces of capitalism or um, yeah. the power that is exerted on us by corporations or by whatever mm-hmm. else? Like, how can we do that? And I think that, and that is climate work because it's like, 
like how can we have an energy system that works for us it's like oh let's have community owned energy let's like and that and to do those kind of things it requires you to talk to your neighbors and to like talk to people in your community and Mm -hmm. get people on board and to work together in a way in which we realize that like our collective survival is dependent upon each other like whether we are joyful or we are sad or we are well or we are like unwell is dependent on each other and like how much we look after each other and how much we hold each other and i think like i think a lot about this um it's a film called Pride. I don't know if you've watched it, but um, Mm-mm. it's about like solidarity. It's so good. It's about basically back in like the 80s um, when Margaret Thatcher was um, prime minister in the UK, they, there was miners' strikes, which miners all across the country were going on strike because um, the government was threatening to like shut down the mines and really impact mm. people's lives and communities that have been miners for generations. Yeah. And this film, it shows this solidarity that was built between queer communities in um, in the UK, in London, and mining communities, which are two communities that you'd expect would, like, not really, like, get on very well. Especially in the UK, the mining communities, like, are traditionally, like, quite homophobic, or well, very homophobic, yeah. and, like, not... Yeah, yeah, and, and really rural. And what happens is that these queer community in London, so they call themselves lesbian and gays to support the miners, they <laughs> realised that the police were no longer harassing them outside of their clubs as much. Hmm. And so they must be harassing someone else. Because oh they realised that like, ah, oh. And so they were like, yeah. So they were like, oh, we're going to go... Um, who who are they harassing? And it's they're they're going and they're harassing the miners on on the picket lines. And so they were like, how can we realise that just because? And I said it, I said it on the on the Bill Gates challenge bit, but like we all need to realise that just because something's hurting me doesn't mean it's not going to hurt you at some yeah. point. Doesn't mean it's already not hurting you in some different way. Absolutely. We need to realise that all of our liberation and our and everything is connected. Mm-hmm. And that's what these like the lesbian and gay support the miners realise is that they're like gay liberation was connected to the liberation of workers um, mm-hmm. and that they had to work together. Um, there's someone on it that says like, solidarity is like saying that I'll hold your hand and you will hold mine no matter what it is. And they have this like banner where they show the mm-hmm. two hands and um, being held together Love and that it. we've got each other's backs. And it's only like having each other's backs that can really like face up to the huge powers that, that be and that yeah. we can see that are coming towards us. It's only if we like really like hold each other that we can do it. And and that's the kind of storytelling actually, sort of going back to what I was saying about um climate storytelling that's the kind of storytelling we need is like showing our community power and showing like mm-hmm. what holding each other can do and showing like like yeah, the other power we can have as communities to do that and that's what we really need and that's what saving ourselves mean it doesn't mean like this heroic one day everything's fine yeah it means like over generations holding each other mm. and building community and building connections to each other and, and resilience oh that's so beautiful i love that so much and it reminds me of that that chant that goes uh, who keeps us safe? We keep us safe in relation mm-hmm. to policing, in relation to climate change and the kinds of ramifications that poor people around the world are going to feel because of that and how people are going to show up for them. Like we need to keep us safe because <laughs> no one else is going to do it. Mm, yeah, yeah. And I have to check out that movie. That's awesome. Since I asked about the tactics and strategies that you found most effective in addressing the climate crisis. Mm -hmm. Do you want to talk a a little bit about the work that you did with Extinction Rebellion or, yeah, any of the other tactics that you used? Okay, I can can do a bit of a journey. So I think I started out in climate being like, the problem is, is that people don't know, which is a classic thing that people say mm-hmm. in climate. They're like, oh, we just need to inform the public. Yeah. If, because I think a lot of people who got into climate work had this like awakening. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, you have this like epiphany moment of like, 
oh, and, and you want to recreate that moment for other people. Yeah. So I think that you, so then you can then believe that the problem is, is that people don't know. Mm-hmm. So, I, so I started off doing social media stuff or under Accenture Rebellion, like my job was in the media team. So we would do like spokesperson trainings where we'd empower people to tell their own climate story. We would like talk to local media in Scotland or like global media when we're doing actions and try and get the word out. And a lot of our actions, some of them were based on just trying to kind of get media attention. A lot of them were also based on deliberately trying to cause like disruption to the government. For example, like our site was outside of the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy. And it was called Power in Truth because it was all about the huge amount of money that the government gives to oil and gas companies every year. And we blocked the road out there and obviously it would have caused like financial disruption to the government, which is, a, I think, is an important like tactic is causing that disruption. After that, just to give a quick chronology, after that then was caught, um, still using social media to raise awareness, but then did a court case against the UK government, which we mentioned before, where we used the legal route to try and first get the information out there so it's on public knowledge because the government had denied that they give huge amounts of money to oil and gas companies every year. So basically in the UK, they had made um, the North Sea, which is off the coast of Scotland, the most profitable place in the world to extract oil and gas because they would not make oil and gas companies pay any tax on multiple years. So companies like Shell and BP didn't pay any tax on some years, which is ridiculous. And they would actually pay them back in subsidies. Um, but they denied that. So we managed to get them to admit that in court. But basically took took the legal, legal route, took the direct action route, took the like raising awareness route. And I think that a lot of things that I've learned from or from a lot of this is that I don't actually think that the problem is that people don't know. Studies have shown, polling has shown, like people in the UK, for example, as a case study, like people really care about the climate crisis and they know mm. it's happening. Mm-hmm. Like they know that, I think it's in the UK, 65% of the population are deeply worried about climate. And mm. it's something that they think about when they're even voting. Like people yeah. do care and they know it's happening. I think the problem is that people don't know what to do about it or people think that we have no power in the face of it. Mm-hmm. And so I think I've pivoted a lot of the work that I do. It's no longer just trying to like, I'm not trying to be like, the climate crisis is happening, like pay attention. But I think people people know. I think I'm more, yeah. now my work is more about like movement building and being like, you already know this is happening, but this is what you can do about it. Yeah. Or you already know something's off this is this is what we can do about it. Because I think whether people know the ins and outs of climate, they know that something is really not okay, like with the world. And they know that it's not helping, like benefiting a lot of us. And a lot of people, the only kind of solution to that that they're being told by like the mainstream media or whatever is to like just work really hard or to become a billionaire <laughs> or to win the lottery yeah. or whatever. And it's like, none of these are real solutions to the fa- the crisis that we're facing. Like yeah. all they're being told to just do lifestyle changes. The real solution is to come together in collectives and communities and to build power and to take down the class that are oppressing us all, the elite class that are oppressing us all and the systems that are doing that. Mm-hmm. And so I think now I still think I would use a lot of the similar tactics. I think direct action is really, really important and has been shown by so many communities around the world. Um, but I think that thinking about strategically about what is like, how does every action we're doing, like, how does that contribute to building power? Like, how does that create the conditions for a transformed world to be possible? And I think that's what I now think of more than just like, let's just reach as many people as possible. Yeah. Or like, let's just tell people about this. It's like, how, what is going to be the material impact of this? Um, mm. Yeah, beyond just awareness. So the Stop Cambo campaign is an example that I can use of that because Cambo was the biggest oil well it was one of the biggest oil fields in the north sea mm-hmm. and it basically was about to be approved by so shell and sicker point energy and um, which is now ithaca energy 
were trying to approve the Campbell oil field. And previously, like, oil fields have just gone through in the UK without disruption. I think in the US, there's yeah. been a much more... Like, because in the US, a lot of the oil fields are, like, on land. And therefore, there's a lot more direct action that happens around them and, mm-hmm. and resistance. Mm-hmm. But I think because these oil fields in the UK are, like, in the middle of the sea, yeah. <laughs> um, far off the coast of Scotland, they've kind of, like, slipped through the cracks, I think, a bit. And people haven't really... not. There have been tons of campaigning and generations of campaigning that set the groundwork, actually, to be honest, for Stop Campaign to be possible. But the... The general public and the mainstream have not really cared as much. Hmm. But with COP26 happening in Glasgow, it was an opportunity for us to kind of change the tone on these oil fields. Um, And that campaign used a bunch of different strategies. So like we had, we launched the campaign with direct action and we occupied the UK government's building in Edinburgh for a day. um, And we did we did tons of media strategy to try and like put pressure on but the, the thing was that is it wasn't just trying to raise awareness it was being like this awareness raising is in order to put pressure on like yeah it was very specific and it meant that like by the time cop came around boris johnson who was who was the prime minister then we've had what like i don't know two others since which <laughs> okay, is wild. Yeah, but um he was questioned by every journalist like international journalists like domestic like everyone was asking him about the Campbell oil field because of our campaigning and because of how much pressure had been put on. Like Nicola Sturgeon was challenged, like every major party leader felt like they had to have a stance on it. And that was using a multiplicity of, of tactics and mm. a multiplicity of like avenues. Like there was a court case around Campbell as well. Like, and I think that's, that's how we win. It's not by just saying, this is the one way to do things. And this yeah. is the one best tactic. Like it's just yeah. direct action or it's just like um, doing media or it's just this. It's like, no, let's use absolutely everything we have in our arsenal (laughs) let's get a bunch of people who have so many different skill sets Mm -hmm. and bring all these people together and make a campaign that wins and a campaign that wins uses as many different tactics as possible absolutely i love that one of the things that i've come to in discussions with other leftists about the right way to protest the right way to make your voices heard you know a lot of people have different opinions about what is the right way to do things but it's key on the left because we're so diverse to accept the diversity of approaches and tactics yeah. and not say, oh, that person over there, I, I condemn them and I'm going to, you know, I don't identify with what they're doing. Like, we mm-hmm. need to just accept that there is going to be different people approaching the problem in different ways, you know, recognize mm-hmm. that they're all part of this work to find a solution to try to change the way that our planet is being run. Yeah, I think that we do need a, we do need a bunch of different strategies. And I think it's hard because I can also sometimes like all of us are kind of I'm sure in different ways be like think that oh that's not the right way of doing or whatever yeah. else. And maybe sometimes it's not, but like I think that in reality like we do need we do just need like a diversity of tactics because that's what really does win yeah. in the end. Like I didn't I didn't think I fully explained, but in just in just six months we managed to stop mm. one of the biggest oil fields in the North Sea from being approved. Yeah. And that was yeah. just like a bunch of people coming together and being like, we're not gonna let this happen. And we're gonna and that was only possible because we if we just used one of those tactics, like I genuinely I think that Cambo would have been approved. Mm, um mm-hmm. but it was because it was like absolutely unavoidable for them to do it. Like we made yeah. it so that it was framed within the industry as a death knell for North Sea oil and gas. Like <laughs> we made it so that like they said it was uninvestable. Cambo was yeah. uninvestable. And like that's part of that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like part of that was like having to use the system. Because I think sometimes there is a, and this is something I, I write about in, in the book a bit, is that I think that sometimes there's a misinterpretation of Audre Lorde's essay, um, The Master's Tools Can mm. Never Dismantle the Master's mm-hmm, House. Because... Mm-hmm. Some people 
take that, like take that one, because I think the people are taking the quote rather than the essay, because they're, they're mm. taking the quote and being like, that means that we can never use any part of the system in order to create a better world. Yeah, no. But what she was actually saying is that we can't use the same like oppressive values or structures mm. in order to create something mm-hmm. better. Um, and there's a concept that's called uh, called like non-reformist reform, which basically mm-hmm. like is an abolitionist concept that realizes that like there are parts of the system that we will have to use in order to create the material conditions for revolution to be possible, mm. for complete transformation to be possible. But we only use those parts that don't allow the system to adapt and continue for longer. So, because mm-hmm. that's my problem, that's the problem with reform is like how it can allow the system to adapt and continue for longer. And so that's how I kind of like view actions that are happening. I'm like, does this create the conditions for, for revolution or for transformation to be possible, even if it is mm. using some parts of the system? Because for Cambo, for example, if if all these oil fields are approved, um, it would be catastrophic for our for our future and for our planet. And so, yeah, like stopping them from from being approved, and that some of that will require like I don't know using parts of the system, like talking to politicians and stuff, and getting them to challenge it or whatever else it is. Um, stopping that is an is an essential part of a future for all of us. And so, yeah, I think sometimes maybe people can take the the ragedness of everything a bit too far as like we can never use the system and I'm like actually we I think we need to think critically of like how is what is strategic and what is not strategic it brings me back to what you were saying about whether or not you were going to go on stage at that um you know Bill Gates event mm. you know the decision whether or not to participate within the existing power structures and engage on that level or not and I think a lot of people you know like looked at Chris Smalls meeting the president and said, oh, he's going to get corrupted and co-opted and his, you know, oh, he, he's a traitor to the cause because he's shaking hands with the president. I'm like, no fucking way, guys. Like, he is using his platform that he has earned to spread this message on the highest levels. We need that, you mm-hmm. know, like, do it. If we can do it, then do mm-hmm. it. You know, don't, like, make shady deals behind the scenes that are going to be, make you beholden to these politicians, yeah. of course. But don't rule out even showing up to that conversation because sometimes showing up to that conversation and making a statement like wearing an Eat the Rich jacket or saying billionaires shouldn't exist, that is going to start a discussion, mm. start people thinking in the direction that we need to be thinking, and and not just in your in your um, echo chamber, people outside of that. That's so fucking key. Like, mm. if you're not speaking mm-hmm. to other people that aren't already the choir that you're preaching to, then what are you doing, you know? <laughs> like, No, exactly, because, like, I think that's, yeah, that's just the thing is that I think so often... So there's a chapter in the book called Too Radical or Not Radical Enough. And it's this mm. whole discussion of like, because I think that there can be this thing within like leftist spaces of like, this person isn't radical enough or yeah. whatever else. And yeah. like this kind of like discussion sometimes. And I think that that like accountability is, in, is important and like listening to mm-hmm. your communities is really, really important. Totally. But I think at some point, and this is what I write about, is like, what are we trying to do? Are we just trying to impress and say the right things to tick the boxes of the people within our movement? Mm-hmm. Or are we trying to really build power <laughs> yeah. and transform the world? And like... Because I realized that in the past, on media interviews, like when I was first doing media interviews, I think I, it's so silly, like it's so funny to talk about now, but like I think I almost like 
was like, if I say the right key, like key terms, then like people within my movement will be like, yeah, she said like white supremacy on the <laughs> yeah. news or whatever. Like, and but the, yeah, you know, like that kind of stuff of like, Ooh. oh, then I will have done a good interview. Mm-hmm. And actually, like, um, I was challenged by mentors and by peers and and comrades that I work with to be like, but like the the mum who's washing up the dishes in the background and has like four, like her four kids like asking her questions who has the news on, is mm-hmm. she going to understand what you're talking about yeah. if we're just using jargon that people within the movement understand what it means? Totally. And who are we really trying? Like, what are we really trying to do? Are we just trying to like pat ourselves on the back for like knowing the right words, or are we trying to actually <laughs> do things and create things? Yeah, I think that that's something that we should we could all be challenged more to do. And there was someone, I actually can't remember the name of the person, sadly, but they they wrote on Twitter about like, um, you can't have good politics without organizing because like good politics like pushes us to realize the only way that we can transform things is by by doing it and by being parts of these collectives and communities. And so it's not just about like knowing the right stuff or like feeling yeah. good about yourself because you like know stuff. And I think that there can be this <laughs> idea of, of that being good politics. And I think good politics is like, is what we do. And it's, it's what we create. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, I'm going to kind of jump ahead in the questions that I had, but just because we're talking about something that's so related, but I I just really love that you're committed to making participating in the climate justice movement accessible, making it intelligible, making it, you know, just not out of reach mm-hmm. of anyone, anyone who wants to become an activist, become an organizer, so given all of your experience as an activist and an organizer, what have you learned that can help to make this vital movement more inclusive and more accessible? So the reason that we started um, the Yikes podcast was because mm-hmm. myself and Joe, who hosts it with me, both of us, we both met in Extinction Rebellion. Also for clarity, both of us have now left Extinction Rebellion a couple of years ago because mm-hmm. of other issues. But um, mm-hmm. we found that before joining for both of us, we felt like activism or organizing was this like really like exclusive hub where people know all the right words. And I even felt like when I first joined a lot of groups, I felt like I didn't know the language to even exist there and that I didn't have the background, enough knowledge or whatever else to be able to do stuff. Like I felt super intimidated. And I think we wanted to create something where we could be like, people could realize that a lot of people like, yeah, there are a bunch of like annoying people who try and make activism really exclusive but there are also like tons of like amazing wonderful loving normal people who take action and that it's not actually as like complicated as it seems and um and that we really wanted to like just make people feel like they can be included because I think a lot of things as well as I didn't realize that I was I was an activist I mean it's not that important whether you call yourself an activist or not but I didn't realize (laughs) that I was doing activism for a long time because I thought to do activism, you had to be this like one kind of brand of person or whatever. Um, yeah, uh-huh. And I think that just showing people that activism is a, is just being active and just like, you know, doing something. And the organizing is is doing things that people already probably know how to do. Like a lot of my, when I was in Extinction Rebellion or in Climate Camp Scotland or whatever else group, like a lot of my role was just communicating stuff like writing google docs about how best to communicate about this issue or or like writing press releases or and a lot of that stuff is is skills that loads of people actually have or or even just like filling in like spreadsheets (laughs) like like making stuff happen or planning things like a lot of it is very basic um skills that loads of people have all that are really easy to learn Um, and also that there's like a multiplicity of roles and that i'm sure that anyone who's listening to this you will have a a specific skill that is really needed in in the climate movement and you have a perspective or whatever movement 
and you have a perspective that is really like valuable and important and you don't need to like read a stack of books before you get involved you don't need to like know everything <laughs> or know the right words you just like have yeah. to to get involved and I think that that's like and, I, and a lot of me like wanting to talk about this stuff and, and communicate it, it just came from a place of like I wish someone had said that to me a couple of years ago you know or however long ago yeah oh totally I had you know my experience with activism I you know I was turned off by so many of the ways that people would approach it and the ways that they would frame it as as mm. as so exclusive and you know oh if you haven't read this text then you don't know what you're talking about and you're not part of this conversation any- anymore and like that <laughs> just like your impetus for creating the yikes podcast was to kind of challenge some of that Mm. a lot of my impetus for creating this podcast came from something very similar of like I know that there's a better Mm. way to be having these conversations that invite people in instead of alienating people and making them feel like they're not worthy enough Mm -hmm. to be part of the movement when right now we desperately need so many people to participate in the movement so many people to step up and realize that they have power and if you're going to you know, mm. do activist gatekeeping and things like that. It's just going to hurt the cause, hurt hurt the, the ability to build that power. So, so yeah, I, I I love the way that you're thinking about inviting people in. It's amazing because even especially around capitalism, there's the, there's so much like. It's made overly academic, I think, like as yeah. if you can't talk about or challenge capitalism unless you have a degree or five degrees in economics, and yeah. um, and also there's so much like sexism that goes into to that as well. There's so much classism of like, mm-hmm. oh, if you haven't like done this, that, and the other, then you can't talk about it. And it's like it's so counterintuitive to the work that we need to do. And there's a chapter on capitalism specifically in my book. And yeah. <laughs> I felt like so nervous about writing that. And then like in, no, but in writing it, I was like, oh, and then I like actually spoke my, my friend who, oh gosh, now I'm nervous. But um, my, my friend <laughs> who is, um, my friend Joe, who's the, co- the co-host of Yikes. Mm-hmm. Joe's writing, sort of doing her PhD on degrowth and, and anti-capitalist um, awesome. economic stuff. And I talked to her about it when I was writing it. And no, she's like a badass and is so, so cool. And <laughs> I, I love her a lot. Um, but she was like, the fact that you even feel you who, and she was like, I know that you know loads, you know loads about this. Like, obviously, yeah. and the fact that you even feel nervous about it. She was like, make, like, be honest about that in what you're writing. And yeah. I was trying, I tried to be honest, like, and I, and be honest about the fact that it's, that we need to move beyond this idea that people can't, like, need to know everything before they can challenge something because mm-hmm. we aren't going to get anywhere with that and in a kind of different vein but more as well of like how we can open up our movements and and stop gatekeeping so much um because there was a really brilliant panel with um adrian marie brown Mm. and um angela davis um for uc davis and it was like 50 years of feminist futures and and within it adrian marie brown was talking about their book um we will not cancel us which Mm. is really brilliant it's like an abolitionist um view on like how cancel culture can be used within our movement. So it's very specifically about within our movements, not like big people. Yeah. But within it, like when talking on that, she was saying that like the bar for entry for our, if we really want to transform the world, the bar for entry to, to, to be in needs to be like super low. And they can raise when people are inside the movements and then we can have, and then we can like, like have that. But we need to like make movements that are open to people because Mm -hmm. the world that we're like trying to hope for and create is literally dependent upon loads of people who currently aren't doing activism or doing 
worked yeah. really well or maybe don't have the best politics it's, yeah. it's reliant on those people being transformed and so we can't have <laughs> movements that are exclusive to those people like it's it's ridiculous like yes. we need we need to create systems with which we can welcome people in yeah yeah and that's why i i i do my best to try to combat the talking points where people are just kind of shitting on liberals and stuff because because those folks are the folks, the exact folks that we need to be having these conversations with, who we need to be inviting into the discussion and into the movement, you know, not saying, oh, you're not as far left as me. Sorry. <laughs> like, I don't know. Yeah. But all this kind of like gotcha, like culture of like, oh, yeah. And, and it, I think so much of that is such an ego boost thing. It's like, and that's mm-hmm. why I think that's like, this is something. So Adrian Marie Brown like writes a lot about. I think about ego and, and stuff like that as well. Mm-hmm. Of like, we we need to like tackle like why are we interacting with each other in this way? Like, and and I would really um, recommend like anyone who's interested in, in more about this reading. I mean, actually anyone. Yeah. We will not cancel us by Adrian Rebrand. It's like a pamphlet. It's really it's really short, but um, it's so so brilliant on how we can interact with each other and how can we can create like movements that people want to move towards, but also like movements that are actually trying to build the world that we want today as well. Amazing. I will definitely check that out. Stepping back a little bit to some of the actual like work that you've done, you are one of three claimants in the paid to pollute case that has taken the UK government to court for financially subsidizing fossil fuel projects that are significantly contributing to climate catastrophe. Can you tell listeners why you chose to take part in this litigation campaign to challenge the twisted relationship between the government and the companies that are ruining our chances of preserving a livable planet? subsidies are like this like not very sexy campaigning thing that we really need to focus on like people don't want to talk about subsidies because it's not like this like fun or like attractive or exciting thing but the entire fossil fuel industry is being propped up by government subsidies like all over the world and if we can tackle these subsidies then we can really tackle the industry at large and part of tackling these subsidies, like part of that is actually to most making that like a, a priority on, on the campaign like roster or whatever of all the um, campaign priorities we have. Mm-hmm. And so doing something like a court case can make that more of a priority. Mm-hmm. I think that for me, my motivation was that I, so I don't know, like a year before, no, just over a year before the court case was when I, with Extinction Rebellion Scotland, we occupied the road outside of the Department for Business, Energy, Industrial Strategy that I mentioned a bit before. Mm-hmm. And that whole site was about these subsidies. And mm. in that moment, that like putting myself, so I, I locked on to locking on is like chaining yourself to infrastructure in the camp so that the police can't move you. Yeah, I never thought that I would do an arrestable action because yeah. I was raised, also someone racialized as black. I was like, I am not going to put myself at the mercy of the police. Yeah. Like, that just seems like wrong for me to do is like put myself like in that position. But when I was there, like I can't really expect, like, it's almost like that for me was like my like big, big epiphany of like, I think sitting, so we were camping in the road for, obviously I could have been arrested actually to us for like camping in the road, but like, hmm. I mean, I was taking that risk, but yeah. we camped in, occupied the road for a, a few, however many days it was. And every day our site was by the parliament so the politicians would walk past us every morning as we were camping in the road to talk to try and raise the alarm about climate and they'd kind of like stand around for like a photo op and then you could search up their voting record and see that they really don't care um or that or even if they do care they're not acting on it yeah and it felt like we were losing our minds like we were like like how what 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 can we do 
to really like shift change and, and, and really change things. I think in that moment, it felt like the thing I could do was to like lock on and mm-hmm. to allow our site to exist for a bit longer. Yeah. Because we were talking about all these subsidies and everything. And it, and in fact, that felt like a last resort locking on. And I was locked on for about eight hours and ended up in a police court, like surrounded by police in the middle of the night and no one else there because they'd removed everyone else. And it was quite scary, but that's like a bit of a longer story. Um, But that felt like a last resort. And then still we were kind of heading for disaster. And so I was, so when I was approached by some folks who were like, there's, there's this court case going on. um, It's around the same topics that you've been campaigning about, about subsidies. Um, Would you be willing to put your name like on this case? Um, Hmm. Would you like be willing to consider it? And, and I mean, Court cases are also a last resort because they are incredibly expensive, like yeah. ridiculously expensive. Yeah. It's just also, it's hard to explain the stress of it, but like, it's this weird form of campaigning as well because I'm not a lawyer. So my name was on the case. I was a claimant on the case along with two other people, but I really had no power as to whether we won or lost. And that mm. was something that was very different from any other campaigning that I'd done before. I had a huge amount of power over how the case was perceived and like mm. how we could use the case as a movement mm-hmm. building like strategy and how we could use the information Amazing, yeah but i mean i think what i mean by it's being a, as last short as well is that it's, it's like it's really stressful <laughs> like i mean i had all right like websites writing articles about me and oh, like God. because of the case and like all this other stuff and 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 it just puts you in like a different position and then it also then had to sit in court like and hear the government defend lots of in my opinion indefensible stuff for, and like yeah and, and then being unable to do anything about it in that moment is like quite, and having to be so polite about it because obviously, because mm. in UK court, you have to like, yeah. if, you, if you go to the toilet, you have to like bow on the way out. Oh it's very God, weird. Really um, that is basically just quite stressful. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it, it was, I was, and also the whole time I was like so scared that my phone was going to make a noise or something and that, and all I was like, and then I started being so, like the illogical thoughts was like, what if the judge hates pink and that they're seeing me dress all in pink and like, I'm not going to give them the right decision. Um, so, but ba- but basically, it was it was a last resort thing. But it was a very like it's, it's trying to be strategic as well. It's being like, okay, we we use direct action. Let's try and use the legal system, knowing that yeah. like whatever happens from that case, like whether we win or lost, that doesn't mean that, that doesn't legitimize the legal system. We're not saying that like the legal system can give us all justice. I think what we're mm-hmm. trying to do is be like, how can we use this to our best ability to to reveal things that have not been revealed because the UK government refused to admit, although they actually openly denied these payments were happening mm. and then they were forced to in court to say, oh, actually, no, wait a minute, this has actually been happening because they got, they can't lie in, in a court of law. Um, and now that information is like public, like that's out there mm-hmm. for that to be used by other campaigns. It's not just about like us holding it. It's like, this is now public record. Yeah. People can use that. Like people can be made more. And I think this is where awareness can come in because people can be made more aware that their taxpayers' money is going into the pockets of multi-billion pound oil and gas companies and that that can hopefully a lot of this is also trying to impact the the social license to exist of these companies like as a people as a collective we without knowing it we give a social license to certain institutions to companies to systems to exist we say that they aren't causing either they're not causing enough harm for us to worry about enough about them or we think that they're doing good mm-hmm. things. And that's why these companies invest so much money in greenwashing campaigns and that's why they don't want their their image to be yeah. impacted. And the cases like this can have an impact on their social license because people can be like, wait a minute, like I didn't know that my money was going to these companies. I didn't know the government was, was complicit in that. And so maybe I'm going to change how I vote or maybe I'm going to 
change like I, maybe I'm not going to support this company or whatever else it is or maybe I'm going to join a movement to campaign directly mm-hmm. against this company that's the best option of all of those ones I've mentioned it wasn't just about like the legal case because also for complete clarity we lost the case like mm-hmm. on legal ground mm-hmm. on like the, for the legal argument mm-hmm. and that was also hard that's another part of it that was hard was like mentally dealing with that um was difficult yeah um but i think that even though we lost the case and the the law wasn't changed because what would have happened if the law would have been forced to be mm. changed the law wasn't forced to be changed because of our case but significant changes have happened because of the case at the same time like things like a windfall tax happened in the uk i mean that it's not good enough but policies that wouldn't have previously i think been considered as much have now been like more central and people like it has had a, i do think it has had a big impact but it's also like has to be this active thing that i have to remind myself that we like that losing isn't like winning isn't yeah, linear yeah and we are going to lose things along the way and that's fine and that doesn't mean that it was an overall loss yeah i keep thinking about one of my favorite people who i've been collaborating with because of the show his his handle on Instagram and elsewhere is Prepper Pig. He's a community organizer. He does a lot of climate justice work. He's a really brilliant person. But he always talks about how like, you know, doing organizing, doing, you know, sustained movement building, you need to just keep the drumbeat going. You can't it's not about like mm-hmm. getting that one thing done and then you did it and then you pat yourself on the back and then you go home and you, you feel good about yourself. It's about just like building that sustained drumbeat, that sustained movement. So Mm -hmm. I think about that all the time now. How can you put yourself into a project in a way that isn't going to just fizzle out immediately? (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. we're just about to wrap up here, but I wanted to ask you, why do you think capitalism is incompatible with a livable planet? We're currently heading towards climate disaster. Like that is the reality. Like for many, that is actually people's current reality. It's not just a future thing. And that is because we have a system that only prioritizes growth in in capital and like exponential Mm -hmm. growth on on a finite planet. So like it's this idea that we should constantly be, like capitalism just requires like a constant extraction from the land and from peoples um, in order to continue. Yeah it doesn't value like clean air or clean water or life. (laughs) It just values profit. And like many, obviously many companies are like, are literally legally bound to make as much profit as possible and to grow. Like that is, that that is the system. Mm -hmm. And that is completely incompatible with a a planet that has finite resources and with like joy and happiness for, for peoples as well. And so the idea that we can just green capitalism, so swap out fossil fuels for just renewables, but still owned by private companies, um, or to just swap out diesel or petrol cars for electric cars, like mm-hmm. that idea also just doesn't actually make sense with our like planetary boundaries. Like, so the yeah. kind of the boundaries with which our planet can still survive in. Because, for example, if we talk about like electric cars, which are a really big example of, of yeah. green capitalism, is this idea that like we can just switch every petrol car out for a, an electric car. Yeah. We'd, would that require the production of so many electric vehicles mm. that still requires extraction from the land in, in Bolivia or in other countries all yeah. over the world that still harms planet and still harms people and that actually still requires like significant amounts of energy and emissions yeah. um, that are just not compatible with a livable planet. And so what we need to do is realize that it's actually the system that has caused all of this, that it's this system that is requiring all of many of us to be living out 
like a life that is just not compatible with 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 life here. Mm-hmm. And so instead of just trying to make that system look better or green that system mm-hmm. and just kind of delay the date of, of climate disaster, let's instead yeah. just like actually tackle the system itself and and create something um better that actually that actually does work for all of us. People make out that green capitalism will save us because it will allow us to continue our lives as they are now. Um, but green but Mm -hmm. I think that the lives that we have now like that's not that doesn't motivate me to continue climate work I'm like if I was doing this work just to uphold the world as it is now like that doesn't make me feel motivated the world is now under capitalism is there's billions of people living in conditions that are not compatible with life presently people do not have very basic things needed for survival even people who do have those basic things for survival like we have significant impacts on like mental health because of capitalism we have significant impacts on on so many different parts of our life we we have restricted yeah. access to joy why are we just trying to hold on to this? it's not even been around that yeah. long i always say this i'm yeah. like there are many things <laughs> like that have been around for much longer why is it easier to like imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism like we can imagine and demand more and better um and i i think that um, it's important that we do um and there like i would really recommend if anyone like is interested in, in reading like something more at length on this um obviously Naomi Klein's This Changes Everything is is really mm, brilliant mm-hmm. on it um but also so recently um more recently A People's Green New Deal um mm. by Max Agile is like such a great book that will really get into this more um well, I don't think I'm not sure if I fully explained very much but we're near the end, no. so hopefully. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, you definitely did. You did in a brilliant fucking way. So great job. Um, and now all we have left is uh, just some plugs. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, so <laughs> I I would love to you know, use these last couple moments just to, to plug some of the work that you're doing, the Yikes podcast. Uh, where can people go to find what you're doing, follow along, support you? Yeah, you can find the Yikes podcast on all podcasting platforms. Um, we we do also have a Patreon, but that just means that we like are able to do the the work we do. But there's no pressure yeah. for people to join, obviously. Um, mm. And you can find that on like Patreon dot com slash the yikes podcast and the yeah you can just search the yikes podcast wherever you get your pods and mm. you'll be able to get it. Um, I guess and another another thing to plug is um. It's a while. It's a wee while from now, but um, I have written a book called "It's Not That Radical: Climate Action to Transform <laughs> Our World," um, which touches that is basically just trying to like reframe the climate crisis yeah. or its solutions as like the best that we can hope for is the same world but green. Like we can demand more, we can demand better. We have to like dismantle capitalism and destroy it. We have to tackle and destroy white supremacy and whiteness. Like all of these things are essential for climate justice. Um, and it's just trying to like do that in an accessible um, and galvanizing way. And it's not just a book that you read. It's hopefully a book that you do and you transform <laughs> the world with. But um, please do not wait to do the transformation work until it comes out in April. Like, please start doing it now. Um, but um, if you, <laughs> I, I hope that it can add to the work that you're doing. Um, if you're, if you're wherever you are based, actually nothing to quickly plug is that the, mm-hmm. um, there is a campaign against the Rosebank oil field in the UK. Mm. Rosebank is one of the it, the biggest oil, undeveloped oil field in the North Sea. It is three times the size of the Campbell oh oil God. field. I didn't realize. Uh, I mentioned before. And if it's extracted, yeah, it's huge. If it's extracted and burned from, um, this oil field alone, so Rosebank alone, would create the same 
emission or more emissions actually than the combined annual emissions of every single low-income country Jesus so that's there's Christ. 28 low-income countries that's 700 million people in the global south and this one oil, one oil field would create more emissions than than all of those peoples than all of those countries it is like ridiculous that the uk government is trying to approve yeah. it um and like cambo we have to stop rosebank too um and so if it, like you can find all the information about that um, on at Stop Cambo on all social media, mm. and um, if even if you just Google Stop Rosebank, you'll find loads of actions that anyone from all over the world can do. Um, so please do like join us in solidarity, and we need to stop this field. Hell yeah, that's so important. Uh, I'm so glad we ended on that note. Michaela, thank you so so much for coming on the show. You are doing you know, the most important work out there. I know you don't want to highlight, you know, individuals that are, you know, and, and prop them up as, as the ones that are doing all the work, but you are doing a lot of the work and you are, I love that you are educating others about the way to join the, the climate movement. So thank you so much. I'm so impressed by you. And um, I really appreciate you coming on the show. No, thank, thank you so much. Seriously. Like, um, I was really, really looking forward to this and I'm so, so glad that we, we managed to do it. Um, I've yeah. really enjoyed our conversation a lot and I'm I'm also like deeply grateful for the work that you're doing because, yeah, yeah we need as many of us out there like doing that kind of like shifting the narrative um, yeah. and also putting a bit of, injecting a bit of joy in there too. And I'm <laughs> really, I'm definitely going to be having the, is it, is it No More Billionaires? No More Billionaires, is that what we yeah. with? Um, cocktail. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> Love it. Cheers to that. <laughs> Cheers and solidarity. Yeah. <laughs> My empty wine glass. <laughs> nice. <laughs>